Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, a murder mystery from the Grave Tales, Sydney Volume 1 book, The Shark Arm Case. April of 1935 and there'd been three deaths from shark attacks on Sydney beaches in the months before Coogee fisherman Bert Hobson set a line to catch a shark and pulled in a monster. With sharks in the news he decided he'd put it on show. Nearby was the Coogee Aquarium and Bert surmised that curiosity would see people come to pay to see the tiger shark. But little did he know it would also put him and the aquarium right at the centre one of the most bizarre murder cases the nation has ever seen. Chris, you couldn't make this stuff up, could you? Couldn't what write happened? this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Bert put his prize catch on show, and uh, as he figured, people did come to see it, and they paid money to come and see it, which was a bit unusual because this was right in the middle of the Depression of the 1930s, not a lot of money around and uh, people were looking, I guess, for, for whatever entertainment they could find that was reasonably inexpensive and this fitted the bill uh, perfectly. So tell me first off, just stepping back, what was the Coogee Aquarium? Uh, the Coogee Aquarium and Baths, I think at one stage even had Pleasure Palace attached to that name as well, it was an establishment in Coogee obviously, uh, right on the beach, which was made up of baths for swimming and an aquarium for displaying fish and other beasties from the sea. Right, so he's put the shark on show, thinking that will draw a few people in. They'll come in and have a swim and then go and see a shark as well. Yeah, well, as we mentioned, uh, sharks were in the news. There'd been um, three deaths of young men at uh, Maroubra and North Narrabeen in the previous month or so. And so, yeah, it was on display. Uh, Everything was going nicely. It had been there for about a week. People were coming in to have a look. And then on uh, the 25th of April, Anzac Day, about 4.30 in the afternoon, the shark seemed to be not as comfortable in its uh, environment as it had been. Lots of activity in the water, splashing, um, and out of nowhere, the shark disgorged a human arm. Oh, good grief. So people are standing there looking at it through the glass, and next minute there's a human arm floating with them. Yeah. Terrible. So what happened next? Well, floating to the surface came bits of a rat and bits of a bird that were well decomposed, some bits of another shark, a smaller shark, and a human arm, uh, which had a rope tied quite firmly to the wrist. So whose arm was it? Well, that was what the police would then have to find out. They came and picked it up after uh, one of the employees of the aquarium held it by the side of the aquarium pool with a stick until the police came. Gruesome. Did they have any clues or how did they find out who owned this arm? Okay, they didn't have a lot to work on, but what they did have was reasonably good. Um, obviously human arm. Uh, The only thing that made it identifiable was it had a crude but effective tattoo of two boxes, um, pugilists, you know, shaping up to each other as they would at the start of a fight. There wasn't much else to go on. The cord that was tied to the wrist, I've never seen any report on what that was. I'm not sure that they even bothered with that really because not long after uh, the tattoo was displayed, along with the arm rather gruesomely in some of the newspapers in Sydney, a man turned up to say that he had a brother. Uh, this man's name was Edward Smith. He said his brother Jimmy um, had a tattoo just like that, and Jimmy had been missing for a couple of weeks, and uh, the family were a bit worried. It doesn't bode well for Jimmy now. Uh, absolutely not. 
What did the police do then to confirm that it was Jimmy's arm, other than show his brother, obviously? Sure. Well, in the 1930s, of course, um, forensic detective work in Australia was in its infancy. Uh, He was initially, I suppose, identified, perhaps not positively, but certainly identified by Edward as probably being Jimmy Smith. When the police looked closely in the forensic, uh, the doctor of the day, the uh, government doctor was a Dr Morgan, he looked at the arm, he was able to establish that it hadn't been bitten off by a shark, that in fact it had been cut off by a knife or something similarly sharp and was a a nice clean cut. So this ruled out a whole lot of things. I mean, it ruled out suicide, Mm. uh, it ruled out shark attack, ruled out accident. And as police suspected, they were probably dealing with a murder. May also be a person walking around without an arm. Well, that's interesting you say that because that came up later in the story. So we've got an arm, we've got a rope around it, and we've got somebody who thinks it might be his brother. What happened next? Well, it was down to police to try and definitely identify this as Jimmy Smith. As I mentioned earlier, forensic detective work was in its infancy, and yet uh, Dr Morgan, who handled this case, was able to preserve the arm and peel away the fingertips. Pretty gruesome stuff. He then had to to try and get prints off this. And remember, this had been in the highly acidic gastric juices of a shark for something like 8 to 18 days. They weren't quite sure how long. So they managed to uh, get the fingerprints off, and then uh, Dr Morgan used a process to toughen them so that they were eventually uh, tough enough, firm enough to be able to be printed, which they were. So he's literally got fingerprints off a arm extract that's been in acidic stomach juice of a shark, which is amazing that it was in one piece anyway. For minimum eight days, maximum probably 18. Amazing forensics. So then they were able to compare uh, those prints with prints that were taken from Jimmy Smith some years earlier when he was involved in a horse racing. I'm not sure it was a scam, but it was certainly an incident. So we've got a grave, however, for the story of a man named Patrick Brady. Where does Patrick Brady come into the story? There were two other key players in this whole bizarre, twisted tale, and one of them was a fellow called Patrick Brady. As you point out, we start the story with his grave. He uh, was a small-time crim around Sydney. He was a well-known forger, known to police for that. And he was involved uh, with Jimmy Smith and another bloke called Reginald Holmes. Now, it's a kind of a complicated relationship. Reginald Holmes was quite a wealthy man. He was a boat builder around town uh, in Sydney. But lots of people figured that a lot of his wealth came not so much from building boats, but maybe from picking stuff up that fell off bigger boats going past Sydney. Some shady deals, maybe? Yeah, yeah. It was a reputation. I don't think he was ever um, charged for it or ever convicted of it, Mm. but it was just something that people in the know knew. As they say, a person of interest. (laughs) It's a nice way of putting it. Jimmy Smith became involved with him when Jimmy tried a few things to uh, make a living. He had a snooker saloon in uh, in Roselle. He worked in a few others around Sydney, and he was known for that. He went into the building game for a while, but that didn't work. So then he became involved with Reginald Holmes. They had a bit of a falling out after an insurance scam they were trying to pull off failed. One of Reginald Holmes' boats burned to the waterline when uh, Jimmy was on board, uh, accidentally of course. They tried to claim insurance on it and the insurance company saw pretty much straight through them I think and and, uh, knocked them back. Uh, So there may have been some bad blood between Reginald Holmes and Jimmy Smith, which police uh, later on in this story 
uh, became interested in. Patrick Brady became involved with them when they started a little scam where quite ordinarily uh, Holmes apparently would pass on the details of the bank accounts of people with whom he had had business. Um, Brady would then uh, forge a cheque for, for usually not large amounts of money on those accounts and he and Smith would then cash them. So this was the nature of, of their relationship. So that arming in the tank is starting to make a lot more sense now, isn't it? Yeah, it is, given that there may have been this bad blood between Brady, although as it was to be revealed later, a story, Jimmy Smith was also a police informant and had told police numbers of things that led to other high-profile crims around town being sent to jail. What happened then? Was there enough to send anyone to trial? Was there enough evidence gathered to put anyone in, in the guilty seat? Well, this thing developed interestingly then because Holmes started to get a bit worried about what was going on. And he went to see police at one stage, gave them a couple of statements. We don't know what was in those, uh, but they are obviously uh, going to be part of the police case when it went to trial. And that was certainly their intent at that point. So this is Holmes the boat builder. Holmes the boat builder. Right, gone to try and save his own bacon, so to speak. And, they, and the police may have given him some guarantees about whether he'd be charged or not. We don't know that. Right. Uh, that, was, that never came out. But Holmes was obviously pretty jumpy at this point because he, he went to his boat shed, got a thirty eight revolver and tried to kill himself. Wow. He must have had a hard head because he put the gun to his head and pulled the trigger and the bullet simply flattened against his forehead. Having had a failed <laughs> attempt at this, he then went and jumped in one of his boats and took off around Sydney Harbour for a number of hours while the police chased him to try and catch him, peak hour on, you know, with the ferries and whatever. Uh, he was then put in hospital. Brady, at this point in time, we now know, because of the evidence of a taxi driver, had been to see Holmes and probably had Jimmy Smith's arm with him with the, when he did. The story goes that Brady went to see Holmes, asked him for £500, uh, which was a lot of money in those yeah. days. Probably told him if he didn't that he'd be telling the police exactly the nature of the relationship between Brady and Smith. It would seem from Boat Builder's reaction here that he wasn't necessarily a person who was used to moving in these crime circles. He's, he's reacted with a great deal of fear, hasn't he, really? Could have been, yeah. Um, it's a bit hard to know that. Certainly uh, what he did next indicates that, that that was the case. He didn't want his family involved in whatever might happen to him from this point on. There are a number of stories as to what happened next. One is that he put out a contract on himself, that he got some underworld figures, paid them £500 mm. to kill him. Um, he went home one night, said to his wife, I've got to meet some people. Uh, he had £500 with him. He went out in his car and he, his body was found in that car at Dawes Point in the vicinity of you know, the Sydney Harbour Bridge area uh, the next morning. So it's a, almost a clean way to die. He'd take pressure off himself having to do the act and he's just sitting there waiting for the hit, basically. That's one way it could have happened. The other way, of course, is that someone could have just murdered him and taken the £500. We don't know, but certainly the, the first one is um, that he contracted someone to kill him. Mm. It's certainly the story that was the strongest at the time. But for him to do that, he's obviously trying to save his reputation. He's trying to make it look like it was some sort of hit on him. If he'd suicided, he might have thought he looked guilty. This way it may have created a smokescreen that somebody had knocked him off as well as Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, could well have been. It makes me wonder about what was in the statements he made to police, mm. um, if, if he felt that was the way he had to go. So did Patrick Brady now look more guilty? Was he the only suspect remaining? Well, yeah, he was, and I suspect that what happened from here on was a little bit out of desperation. The police had had lost their key witness. I, I suspect that, that uh, Holmes was their key witness against Brady. Right. 
and Holmes was now gone. There were two stages that followed this. The first was the inquest. And again, despite having lost one of their key witnesses, the inquest went ahead. So Patrick Brady was being shaped up for trial for the murder of Jimmy Smith. Yeah, well, this would be uh, an inquiry into the death of Jimmy Smith and what should follow from it, if anything. The man who represented uh, Patrick Brady was a very smart lawyer by the name of Clive Ebbett. The Ebbett name, well known around Australia as politicians. He was a politician. His brother... Uh, Doc Ebbett, as he was known, was uh, at one stage the um, the president of the United Nations. Powerful uh, family. A powerful family around town. Clive Ebbett got up in, in the coroner's inquiry and said, look, if, if you want to have a coronial inquiry, then you have to have a body or a substantial part of one. Right. The point you were mentioning earlier. Mm. And there isn't one. All there is is an arm. And the coroner said, well, look, I've taken this into account, but I want to see what comes out of the evidence mm. that's put before me as to whether an arm is enough to hold a coronial inquiry. Because basically Clive's saying that Jimmy Smith could still be alive, he could just be walking around without an arm, so we really can't try Patrick Brady for murder. Yeah, exactly. But the trial did go ahead, uh, despite all that had gone before, and it didn't last long. Uh, there was a, a little bit of evidence given, um, a lot of argument about whether the jury should be allowed to hear the evidence, and eventually Mr Justice Jordan uh, directed that Brady should be acquitted. Um, he said this was a case where the evidence was circumstantial, and in such cases it was well established uh, that a jury is not entitled to convict unless there's no other reasonable explanation of the evidence except that the accused is guilty. Clearly, in this case, that wasn't the case. Uh, Brady was acquitted, but as soon as he got outside the precincts of the court, he was arrested again over a forgery charge in Tasmania. It pays to have a good lawyer, doesn't it? <laughs> At the end of the day, though, really, what were the chances of this ever coming to light? You've got you know, a shark, an arm, an aquarium... How unlucky were these guys? Well, I mean, consider the possibilities. The evidence in the coroner's court said that there were other things in the shark's stomach. Uh, we know what the, they were. A well-decomposed uh, rat and a bird and pieces of a smaller shark. Um, so the chances of this whole thing happening rested on, firstly, somewhere in Sydney waterways, probably around Maroubra, uh, a smallish shark came across Jimmy Smith's arm and ate it. Entirely unrelated to that, Bird Hobson and his son laid a trap for a shark a mile and a half off Coogee Beach, and the next day discovered that a smallish shark had taken the bait. Um, as they wound the smaller shark in, a larger shark attacked it um, <laughs> and in doing so tangled itself up in their line and couldn't get away. Which must have been a bit of a shock for the two Hobson men too. They must have been thinking, oh my God, look what we've got. Well, and it happens. As you're winding in a fish, yeah. a bigger fish will attack it. The shark got, um, got wrapped up in their line, tangled up in their line, so they decided to take it and put it on display. So the chances of all these things happening at this point are quite remarkable. Then, of course, a week later, um, the big shark disgorged the arm and bits, and of, bits the of the small shark, uh, which enabled the tattoo uh, to be recognised and fingerprints retrieved. So, I mean, not only was it just such remarkable odds that this should happen, but the bit of Jimmy that was regurgitated if you like yeah. it was probably about the only bit that could be identified oh isn't that a classic well jimmy had his moment didn't he <laughs> and the case remains unsolved to this day wow fantastic you couldn't make it up as i said <laughs> from the start so did we ever get a deathbed confession from patrick brady no patrick brady uh, maintained until death 
and he lived to the age of 76, mm. that he had nothing to do with the death of Jimmy Smith, that in fact they parted best of mates. And there have been lots of stories since then about the connections between Jimmy and the police in that he, it was revealed that he was a police informer mm. and those people that suffered as a result of him giving police evidence. Mm, so there may have been a long line of people wanting to uh, feed Jimmy to the sharks. Patrick Brady might have been telling the truth. Yeah, well, and when they parted, Jimmy still had two arms. And he's a... <laughs> so Presumably. Where do we find Patrick's grave, though? Uh, Patrick is in um, the Macquarie Park Cemetery. It's not a hard grave to find. It's a well-laid-out cemetery. And you'll find Patrick in the Catholic Monumental section, DD7, Grave 0067, and there's a full map in the book for anybody who might need it. You've been listening to Grave Tales, the series podcast. Look out for further episodes and connect with us at gravetales.com.au on Facebook and on Instagram. And look out for our tours. Music by Kai Engel and Stefan Kartenberg, copyright 2018, Atlas Productions and Grave Tales. 